unfiltered, uncensored, and unapologetic. This is the Retail War Zone Podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to a very rare off-schedule Retail War Zone. I'll go ahead and give a shout out to um, Irish Connection, who kind of did the the footwork on making this happen. Uh, he had messaged me looking to get a hold of somebody, you know, in the academic field to talk about some of the topics that we cover. And you know, him being the MV, the War Zone MVP, he made good on that promise. So this evening. We have joining us Nick Kalsh. He is currently director for the Wyoming Center for Business and Economic Analysis. So having said that, we're going to talk about minimum wage. Uh, I know that's a topic that a lot of us kind of flirt around with a good bit on here. So having said that, Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got into what you're doing, and then we'll kind of go from there. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Nick Kelsch. I'm an instructor of economics and public policy at Laramie County Community College. Um, I studied economics, accounting, and marketing at the University of Iowa for my undergrad. I got a master's in economics at Western Illinois University um, and then just kind of bounced around the Midwest before accepting a job out here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, so for the Center for Business and Economic Analysis, I write economic reports and commercial property reports for uh, Laramie County, which is where Cheyenne, the capital is. And uh, I just teach uh, a lot of economics courses. So nice. that's the other hand of my job. Yeah. So we're, we're, gonna, we're just going to roll into this. So Irish, I know you're prepared. So start us off. What you got? Well, so, somewhat. Uh, I, <laughs> I just want to say that it's... it's um, it's an appropriate uh, topic, uh, obviously, at the moment because uh, of everything that we see in the news about you know, labor shortage and this, that, and the other. But also, from an academic point of view, which is tonight's kind of theme, uh, this month, uh, the Nobel Prize for Economics was uh, handed out to people who were talking about the minimum wage and how raising the minimum wage does not lead to job losses. Um and 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 you know that came from David Card from Berkeley, Joshua, uh, uh, I think it's Angers from MIT, and another individual from Stanford. So these 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 are people who actually know what they're talking about. Uh, yeah. So just to set the tone, we're 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 talking about something that's both in topic um, and from an academic point of view relevant to uh, to something as as as. Pres- prestigious as the Nobel Prize. Uh, so um, that, that's that's just one thing. But I, I would just like to ask Nick, first of all, like, you know, from a historic point of view, the minimum wage, why was it, why was it initiated? Um, so the minimum wage became an issue because of labor disputes uh, that became bloody, really. Um, so a lot of labor laws started in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, we started having like child labor laws. Um, we started establishing standard work weeks, which were initially six days a week and now we're five days a week. Um, and then we had to start establishing minimum wages because we had people who could uh, work, but not necessarily like afford a place to live. Um, and so we wrote the Fair Labor Standards Act, I want to say in like 1935, um, that's established the first minimum wage. Um, which is just the minimum requirement um, that you have to pay someone to go and actually work for you. 
So as we were discussing, you know, uh, before the stream, um, tell us a little bit about the, the two states that you know of that have the really, really pitiful low state minimum wage. Yeah. So there are two states that actually pay below the federal minimum wage. Uh, one is Georgia, where uh, they pay five fifteen, and the other is Wyoming, where they also pay five fifteen an hour, uh, which would be the minimum wage back before it moved to seven twenty five in two thousand nine. Um, so it's been uh, at least twelve years old. Um, but how it works is not every business is subject to the federal minimum wage. Um, it doesn't affect businesses that earn less than half a million dollars and uh, don't engage in interstate commerce. So. Uh, big corporations, your Amazons, your Walmarts, they have to adhere to the federal minimum wage. Um, but like a small farm or ranch that doesn't uh, bring in over half a million dollars in revenue does not. Uh, and so that's how states can get away um, without paying the federal minimum wage. Real quick, before we get into this list of stuff ours has, the discussion, we talk a little bit about the, the goodwill thing. Yeah, so um, there are establishments that hire people who are mentally and physically disabled. Um, and so if those employees were deemed um, essentially so, uh, it's hard to explain it. Basically, if their productivity wouldn't match a typical workers um, and they couldn't be hired anywhere else, um, companies can take advantage of that and be uh, allowed to pay a wage lower than the minimum wage. So, um, Companies like Goodwill have taken advantage of this system where they hire uh, people who are mentally disabled um, and then pay them a wage below the federal minimum wage. That is just awful. I mean, terrible. Yeah. It's, yeah. Wow. All right, Irish, what you got? Um, well, just just to ask something on, on um, is that exclusive to, to thrift stores or, or is it possible for the likes of Walmart to also exploit that? Uh, it would be possible for other firms to exploit it. Um, thrift stores are just kind of known for being uh, ones that hire those okay. uh, mentally and physically disabled folks. Yep. Okay, uh, just, just you're an academic. Okay, so so from an academic point of view, um, does it frustrate you that, uh, that the vast majority of, of papers and research out there uh, that talk about the minimum wage don't really... Uh, don't really do it from the employee's perspective. Yeah, it's kind of tough because a lot of it is kind of uh, macro or aggregated data. Um, so it's the employers that are going to put out the data on the number of people they hire, right? So um, like a card and crew paper, for example, when they raised minimum wage, I believe it was in New Jersey, uh, and they talked about um, – the number of jobs in retail and other sectors between New Jersey and Pennsylvania uh, that we're looking at kind of like a border analysis because mm -hmm. I believe New Jersey raised their minimum wage and Pennsylvania didn't. Um, and you didn't see this big shift of jobs crossing the border, right? Because essentially it's just traveling to a different state to work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's where the data comes from. So it's looking at how um, employers are keeping their employees on and not necessarily the standard of living from an employee's perspective. From an academic standpoint, what do you think the holdup has actually been with the minimum wage not moving, you know, in 12 years? Sure. Um, so there is this 
big argument that if the minimum wage goes up, it'll cause higher inflation, it'll cause job losses, um, because people look at it from a very strict like supply and demand type model. Um, they don't take into account that prices inflate even when the minimum wage doesn't inflate. Uh, they don't take into account that other costs don't necessarily move when the minimum wage changes. They don't take into account the fact that um, people on the low end of the uh, income spectrum spend a larger proportion of their income on goods and services. And so um, when you raise the minimum wage for people at the very bottom, um, they're actually going out and spending that money, recirculating it in the economy. And so there's this demand shift that people are not accounting for. You know, They're strictly looking at inflation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, we covered that a while back. You know, I covered a uh, cost plus infa- inflation and, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the things that a lot of these businesses try to do and they try to use that as an excuse, but the reality of it, you know, from, you know, working in the business as long as I have is it seems to me that it comes down to the corporations and the sellers of goods and services refuse to take any kind of hit on their profit margins. So, mm-hmm. so the wages could go up, you know, and they could take like a 5% hit overall, you know, on an item, so to speak. And, you know, it just seems like the argument for minimum wage just becomes how can we validate moving the goalpost, you know, for profit as the minimum wage possibly increases? Yeah. So we kind of saw this with Amazon like last year or two years ago, um, because you would see stories on like the John Oliver program about the way that Amazon warehouse employees are treated. Um, and then you hear about like what they're being paid for, arguably the most profitable company in America. I mean, it's like huge, right? Jeff Bezos is worth like $200 billion. Um, And so, you know, they kept arguing, Amazon should pay their employees better. So Bezos reacts, says, hey, we're going to pay all of our employees 15 bucks an hour and gets good PR out of it after people have like nagged him for months to do it. Um, So if you can put it into a PR perspective, they're going to do that instead, right? Like we pay our employees better to come shop with us. Yep. Your turn, Irish. Okay. Um, now, one of the arguments, is, as you just mentioned there, uh, against uh, raising the minimum wage, they, they always throw inflation um, at you. Now, now what, I, um, what I would argue there is that uh, for, for lower wage workers across the board, uh, including in retail and service workers, from an academic point of view, their rate of inflation uh, for cost of living is, is actually disproportionately higher uh, than the average wage. So there are, there are different rates of inflation, in other words. So like, you know, the cost of gas, cost of food, everything else. So you know, their proportion of what they pay if, uh, out of their wages in rent and food and gas is actually uh, disproportionate. It, it, they have a much higher inf- inflation rate than the average as that, that is reported. Yeah, so we're kind of talking about two different things. Like the inflation rate for the country, um, like everybody kind of faces that. But if you look at things like rent, rent is really the big issue here. Um, The minimum wage has not kept up with the inflation of rent. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at a map of uh, 
the minimum wage needed to afford like a two bedroom apartment in every state. The the minimum state, which I think is like Arkansas, one of the lowest cost of living states in the entire uh, U.S., uh, you would need a wage of like 14, 15 an hour to afford an, a two bedroom apartment. Like we're not talking buying a house. We're talking kind of the bare standard of living. Uh, and so the fact that, you know, places like Arkansas still have a 725 minimum wage, it's half of what it's needed to live there. Um, there's that disconnect. Yeah. And-, and until we tie the minimum wage to, rents, you're just not going to see that uh, living wage show up. Right. And and I had done some research. All right. So obviously the minimum wage hasn't changed since 2009, but since 2009, yeah. the, the medium, the median rent has went up 35%. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's brutal. I mean, I even showed my students the other day, uh, my old apartment that I lived in, which is just kind of a shitty little one bedroom apartment had carpeted bathroom, carpeted kitchen, carpeted everything. Cause it was built in the seventies. Uh, and it flooded like four times when I lived there. Cause it's a basement level apartment, uh, went from six eighty a month in rent when I left there a year ago to seven fifty a month on the market as of yesterday. Wow. Like Whew. just stupid. Right? <laughs> like yeah, that, that, it's not a good place to live. That, and they raised the monthly rent by 70 bucks. Do you think the pandemic and the amount of potential evictions come into play with some of these astronomical rate increases in rentals just to try to cover their losses? It, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because like, uh, I don't know that there were a lot of landlord rent assistance programs built into the CARES Act. Right. You just heard about people receiving expanded unemployment benefits. Um, Yeah. If that eviction moratorium goes away and it very well could or has in some places. um, Yeah, you could see a lot of people out on the streets or moving to a lot cheaper, cheaper places because remote work is going to become much more expanded in the U.S. I believe. So in. In your research and, and everything that you've learned, I know one of the big things that I've focused on a lot as far as wages go is, you know, up until about 1970, productivity and wages were kind of, you know, on par with each other. And then like, and yeah, yeah, in the 1970, the wheels came off the wagon and productivity, you know, sky high and, and the wages stayed flat. Do you attribute that to more or less, for lack of a better term, corporate greed? So that is a huge part of it, right? It's uh, the minimum, yeah, uh, the wages for the average worker, I think went up like 18%, right? In the last four years uh, and productivity went up a hundred percent, right? So productivity doubled and wages didn't match it. Not even close, right? Um, Yeah, part of that is definitely corporate greed. If you look at ratios like CEO salaries compared to their average workers, right? It's uh, that ratio has increased from like, 35 to one to over a hundred to one. Like it's, it's wild how much executives get paid for compared to the people actually doing the work, you know? Absolutely. Irish, what you got? I, well, slight change of uh, topic there, but I I would be interested to know, um, uh, Nick, what your, uh, 
what your opinion is on the kind of cultural aspect of minimum wage. In, in other words, how minimum wage is perceived now versus maybe, say, 30 years ago. Because uh, I, for example, like most people, started off a minimum wage and the, the, the perception was at the time that, you know, you, you're, you're there you're there to you're earning minimum wage because you need to learn you you, you need to uh, you need to upskill blah 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 now like that doesn't hold any water for me anymore and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that right that is the argument that kind of layman makes right a person who doesn't study economics doesn't study labor is just going to say well it's designed for teenagers it's designed mm-hmm. for low skilled workers Correct. people need to learn and then they'll move their way up and out of it. And like the fact is, if the minimum wage were designed just for teenagers and teenagers are the only ones who should accept those jobs, then why are fast food restaurants and retail stores still open during school hours? I mean, where are the teenagers <laughs> to go and actually work those jobs? Like, Damn good that point. That doesn't hold Correct. water for them. Correct. Uh, and why is the median age of a fast food worker in their probably 30s? You know? Yeah, so I think part of it is barriers to education, um, financial barriers to education. Typically, you can retrain in a trade skill or you go and get a degree, um, but states on the whole have kind of reduced their state uh, contribution to uh, public institutions. So uh, places like the University of Iowa and Western Illinois, where I went to school, now receive uh, less funding per student than they typically did 30, 40 years ago. So the cost of going to college is much higher for people in my generation than say my dad's generation. So going back and retraining becomes uh, very financially costly. Um, People have families and so they need to have money to go and support their kids um, and maybe spouses that don't work. And so they cannot take time away from it um, from being full-time employees to go back and retrain. And so you just have these financial barriers set in place. And part of it's personal choice, like choosing to have kids. Um, And part of it is personal choice and not going to college right away out of high school. Um, But the financial barrier to go to school is really the the big thing that kind of keeps people stuck, if that makes sense. So when you're teaching, what kind of, what kind of feedback and like questions do you get, you know, from, you know, uh, obviously you know, from my standpoint, a younger generation on topics like the minimum wage and things like that. Yeah. So um, I, I did a video interview um, for CGTN. You can find it on YouTube. It's called living on minimum wage and I'll show it to my students and um, we'll talk about, you know, what should the minimum wage be? Should it be a living wage? Like is suggested by data where it's, like three to four times whatever the average rent is in your area? Um, should it still be sitting at 725? Should there be a minimum wage? And so we get into uh, discussions about kind of where it should land, right? And so uh, students who are out there working for the minimum wage obviously argue, yeah, it should be a lot higher, right? Like I need to pay all my bills and I'm falling behind on certain things. And like if their car blows up, they just don't have the money to make a repair. And becomes a real problem for them. Um, other students will argue that, you know, these are people without skills. And so uh, until they learn them, they should be paid kind of like these low training wages. 
They should be able to work their way out of it. Uh, and in a perfect world, the hardest working people should be paid like millionaires. But you know, the fact is teachers and farmers typically don't get paid all that well. Right. Now, I would, I would also think, too, that a lot of that opinion is probably something they were raised with. Oh, absolutely. Right. It's a meritocracy. I pulled myself up. I worked really hard. I got paid more than the minimum wage. It's like, I mean, if you think about people who work, say, fast food, you're on your feet all the time, right? I mean, I was always told if you have time to lean, you have time to clean. Mm -hmm. So uh, they constantly had you moving. I mean, very few rest breaks. Like, And it's if you're working in the kitchen, it is a hot, humid place to be. And if you accidentally touch a fryer, I mean, your, your finger is messed up for weeks. Like it is, these are harsh working conditions. These are people working pretty fast. They have time constraints they have to meet. And like, it's not like they're lazy. It's not that they're not hardworking. It is people don't value the work they're doing. Their bosses, their executives don't value them. You hit the nail on the head with that one do not value that and it's and it's awful i'm all right so you know you've been you've been researching all this stuff you you teach it and whatnot does the quote unquote great resignation surprise you at all no not, not even close and the the hesitation to come back into the workforce I, in fact i was talking about this with my students this past week um you'll see uh, these job signs advertising 12 to 14 bucks an hour all over town, trying to encourage people to come back and work for them. Um, and there are some serious hesitations because, well, one, you have the pandemic hesitation, right? If a person is unable or unwilling to get vaccinated and they get the disease, they could be hospitalized. Um, and if you don't work full time, you don't have health insurance. So um, that is super costly. Uh, and then some of these advertisements are actually kind of misleading um, and what they're saying is that if you work for us for long enough and you train through all these things, you might be able to earn 12 to $14 in the future, but we're going to start you off at like seven, $8 an hour to train up. Like, and so you have that kind of hesitation and then the expanded unemployment benefits, it just became uh, better for a person to, they earn better benefits and by not working than they do by working. Now, with the benefit, true, but when the benefits ended, you know, there was just a report that came out today um, that I read, you know, the benefits have been gone for a while and people still aren't going to those jobs. What do you, what do you think causes that? The the hesitation or maybe they felt betrayed? Perhaps. um, It also depends on if they get full-time work. Like the fact that health insurance is tied to full-time work is a huge barrier for people. Um, it would be alleviated if we had something like universal health care um, where it doesn't matter where you work, right? You can go to the doctor, whereas people might still be waiting to go back to the workforce uh, until they can find a full-time job. They're not going to accept part-time work because they cannot uh, afford health insurance under it. I think that's a huge barrier to it. I think also too, and you know, in my experience, there's a lot of people who do work full time, and you know, like some of these restaurants and whatnot. And the insurance is so overpriced, they can't take the hit on the paycheck. That's right. Yeah, it's Americans pay more for health care per person 
and just about every other developed nation in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it's still privatized is kind of shocking. Like, you know, I don't agree with everything Bernie Sanders says, but like the part about universal health care and it being cheaper, that's proven to be true. Like, that's unequivocal. Yeah, we, we, we had a discussion one time uh, with Irish Connection about, you know, their health benefits versus ours. And, you know, to some extent, uh, I, I think he would agree. He was just shocked at what we're dealing with. Right. Yep. And you I deal am. with a lot of, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, there's a lot of misinformation, right? Like they talk about, uh, oh, all this socialized medicine up in Canada, people were waiting months to get surgery. Like there are longer waits for elective surgeries, but if you needed open heart surgery, you still go to the ER and you still get served. Like that still happens. I, I could be wrong about this, Irish, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Like, Yes. Uh, I, um, I, I, I think I said it at the time as well. See, I, I think that the, it might even warrant its own ep, uh, you know, episode uh, that healthcare w- w- within not just retail, I suppose, but any lo- low paid uh, job in the United States. It is ridiculous. Nick, you're absolutely correct. Uh, per capita, you spend, uh, it, it's, it's one of the most inefficient models <laughs> I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you, 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 you spend, absolutely crazy amounts of money and you do not get value for it and um just like actually on that topic go back to value like you know price is what you pay value is what you get okay yeah. and in terms of the jobs market at the moment uh globally but in particular in the states you know the there seems to be a disconnect uh with the uh, in particular, the bigger employers, they don't get it that there's been a shift in the market here. Uh, you need to pay more because if you if you do not pay more, the value of what you have, uh, you know, you're going to lose good employees, um, or you're going to get people that don't care about working for you. Um, you know that that that's that's a big thing. I think that they they. For me, they don't seem to understand that the, what we call it, you know, the, the great resignation or whatever it is, it, it's a fundamental shift in the market. Yeah, they, and there are positions that just aren't going to come back. Uh, if you've ever walked into a Walmart or a grocery store, you notice now that at least half of the registers are closed and it's now become all self-checkout. So there's a situation where if the technology becomes close enough to be cost effective to replace an employee, they're going to do it because mm-hmm. machine never has to go on vacation and the machine is on strike. Yeah, that's exactly right. John Deere is dealing with that right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing about self checkouts is we did an entire episode on it. You know, I think the core comes down to the people that complain about it are your typical rude customers. They're just mad. They can't yell at a machine. <laughs> yeah. And they're on camera when they do it, yep. typically. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure if uh, if if you seen in the UK, uh, Tesco uh, opened uh, its first store that has no checkouts at all, just uh, the last couple of days. 
Uh, not even self-checkouts. It's one of those, uh, I think it's modeled on something Amazon was thinking about. You know, it has high-tech cameras and, you you know, it just monitors what you take off a shelf and so on. You know, I mean, automation is is definitely killing jobs. Uh, and uh, that's, I, I see where that is going. But, you know, I think they're investing all of the profits that they get uh, into things to replace employees. And we're missing the people, uh, you know, we're, we're missing the value in, in people, like uh, largely. And I think corporations just have, they just keep chasing the bottom line. They don't actually think about their workforce and the wider effect it has in the economy. As it, you're an economist, you know this much, that, you know, the, the lower wage workers spend more of their money in the economy. Yeah. You know, that's what we, if you, if you raise the minimum wage, it will stimulate it, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I give this example to my students all the time. I ask them, what would you do if I gave you 20 bucks? And I get answers like, oh, I'd go buy groceries with it and go buy food with it. I might go uh, shopping at the mall with it. Right. Um, and then I ask them, you know, what if you gave Donald Trump 20 bucks? <laughs> well, give me answers like, oh, he'd sit and invest on it or he'd wipe his ass with it. I mean, just, you know, typical responses. But th- that's what holds up, right? The, the very low income, they spend a, an incredibly high proportion of their income on goods and services. They're mm-hmm. spending it on rent. They're buying uh, groceries. They're spending it on utility bills, cell phone bills, cable bills. They have all these different needs that are trying to be met. And they have to meet them. And so their paycheck is going to go to do that. Whereas if you gave it to a Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett doesn't need 20 bucks. If he saw it on the ground, he probably wouldn't even bend over to pick it up. It would just like they don't need all these extra tax breaks. And so the the trickle down economic theory, right? If the rich get taxed, because they'll create more jobs. So it trickles down to us. Like it makes sense if you don't think about it. <laughs> Very well put. The rich have no incentive to share their wealth. Now, when when you gave the history of minimum wage, you made the comment about the talk around a minimum wage so you could afford rent and you could afford to live. At what right. at what point in time do you think that that thought process just disappeared because obviously when the minimum wage was enacted, it was actually enacted to help with those things. And now it's like, you know, minimum wage, like you said, it's like, Oh, it's for teenagers or it's for this or it's for that. But at the original core concept was for people to be able to live off of it. Yeah. It's designed to be a living wage. says it right in the fair labor standards act itself, right? It's designed to allow you to live where you work. Um, and I think really it's kind of like this argument that trickles through from corporations to people who don't think through what they're saying. Um, and so it becomes this argument because you do see a lot of teenagers working at it. You do see a lot of people who maybe don't have high school diplomas working for the minimum wage. And it's this low skill, low wage argument. Well, if you or I were to start up working at McDonald's, we would be the low person on the totem pole, regardless of our college education or previous work experience. The people who have been working there longer are simply better skilled at those jobs than we are. So mm-hmm. that doesn't hold a lot of water, right? People train, they learn, 
they learn to do things a lot better and they should be compensated for it, even if it's something that most people are capable of doing. Correct. What you got, Irish? Um, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, do you think that uh, talking about the minimum wage, we get tied up in uh, a kind of arbitrary number, like, you know, say $15 an hour too much, because obviously there's so many variables, like $15 an hour in working in uh, a cafe in Manhattan is criminal. Uh, however, in other parts of the country, it may actually be more toward the livable wage. Yeah, so if I were to fix the minimum wage, right, I guess like if I were some all-powerful presidential type and I were establishing a minimum wage, I would want to have um, cost of living ties to it. So mm-hmm. it would be like geographically different even within states, right? Because if you're living in Manhattan, your rent is going to be uh, much, much higher than if you're living on Staten Island mm-hmm. and certainly higher than if you're living in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, And so you would have these kind of geographical differences. So if corporations really want to take advantage of low wages, they would have to move to rural or otherwise low income areas. Um, So you would see geographical differences. There has to be some sort of component there, Um, but it really, it needs to be tied to rent. Rent is usually number one or number two cost for everybody. Yeah, you know, the one thing that everybody needs the most is the damn hardest to get, and that's a place to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What you got, Irish? Well, I suppose uh, I'd like to know your opinion. In in over here in Ireland, um, we we, we do have a a minimum wage. Um, It equates to about somewhere between $11 and $12 an hour. And like I just said, the cost of living varies wildly depending on where you're living. Sure. Um, but what some in particular retailers have done uh, to kind of uh, avoid paying the minimum wage is actually promote people and pay them a salary and then double their hours. And this is, is yeah. sort of a, a by proxy way of paying people less. And I, by the way, was one of them. And I, at the time, and Steve knows this, I, I bought into that bullshit Kool-Aid retail crap of like, you know, it'll be a great opportunity to do this. And effectively, what I was doing was <laughs> I was getting paid per hour less than some of the people that I was supervising. I'd just like to know your opinion right. on that. Yeah. So salaried workers, right? There isn't uh, an hourly component tied to it. So if you work extra hours to get your job done, you don't receive any extra compensation for it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, as a teacher, I have a bunch of papers in one of my classes. I have to work on weekends to get them done, but I'm not going to receive any extra pay for it. It's just work that has to get done. So it, it is a very uh, interesting scheme around it. Um, but I'm surprised that if you have trackable hours and you work longer than the typical 40 hour work week that you wouldn't be able to um, have any sort of recourse against it. That's a little bit interesting. Well, I, um, I remember back when I think it was Obama and it got shot down, obviously, you know, when the administration changed, but one of the last things he had enacted was going to be this sort of mandate that if you were a salaried employee, 
you had to make X amount of money or any hour over, I believe, 45 hours, you were supposed to <clears throat> get like an overtime rate. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I've also remember uh, changing the work week from 40 hours to 35, right? Essentially kind of lowering the bar for who qualifies to being a full-time worker. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be great. You just, you have to track it for positions and it's tough in places like teaching where, um, you know, like, for example, I teach five classes. Uh, two of them are online and three of them are face-to-face. And so my hourly time in the classroom itself might be like 10, 12 hours, right? But I'm clearly doing preps and grading and doing all these other tasks uh, that are part of the job. And if I do it efficiently, I mean, should I still be compensated beyond that work? So it's like, it's tough to measure with those salary positions because there's not like, there isn't always an output component to it. Mm. Like it's, it's a lot more complicated than I think we're giving it credit for, but yeah, in a perfect world. Yeah. You would be compensated for 40 hours and any hour worked above it. You'd get extra pay, but yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're doing work, get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What you got Irish? Well, um, I suppose just going back to the, um, academic side of things. Do you know of any um, sort of academic studies, uh, academic studies on um, minimum wage workers that say, uh, do they suffer from things like depression or drug dependency or, you know, lifespan, all that sort of stuff. Is there any studies that you're aware of that, that that kind of highlights uh, the, the, the correlation between minimum wage workers and their, their kind of life outcomes? I haven't read any studies on uh, the minimum wage and health outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, we could talk through on why it would have uh, an adverse uh, selection on their health, right? Because a lot of minimum wage workers don't work one job. Mm-hmm. They work two or three, right? So they're instead of putting in 40 hours a week, they're putting in closer to 80, right, just to make ends meet. Um, and so that kind of additional stress weighs on them. There's the financial stress they would be under. Um, and then, of course, the the type of food they're going to typically buy, right? Like, if you're a minimum wage worker and you go out to eat, you're probably not going to eat at, like, big fancy steakhouses. Uh, you're more likely to eat fast food, right? And so mm-hmm. your intake of things like saturated fats is going to be higher. Um, but I would have to look at some look for some longitudinal studies. I can't say for certain that it is one way or the other. Uh, Hero had had a question in the chat. Um, what if there were a maximum amount of rent, maybe based on population density, made in proportion to the average salary in an area? Do you think that would make them rethink minimum wage in an impactful manner? Well, rent controls in certain areas of the country, like New York City, kind of exist. And I don't New York City and San Francisco and Seattle are a little more progressive in raising their minimum wages anyway. Um, it would, if the minimum wage in your area were tied to rent, like if you had these geographical differences, um, you would definitely see rents change in certain areas, right? You wouldn't see the astronomical rents in San Francisco that you do um, because people couldn't afford to live there. Uh, or bus in, and then they would start losing jobs to rural areas or otherwise low-income neighborhoods. So it would be it would be interesting to see if there's any leveling out 
because um, there are other amenities to living in San Francisco that you wouldn't have in rural areas like Nebraska. Right. Um, so there's issues there. Um, but yeah, having a rent component tied to your wages for your area would be hugely beneficial, I think. So as an economist, what is your take on cost of living? And what I mean by that is how much of it do you think is inflated just from a profit standpoint? Because you hear a lot of people, you know, the same people that are complaining about if the minimum wage gets raised, you know, they're going to be paying, you know, more for merchandise. They never were like stomping on the steps of the Capitol raising cane anytime there was a huge um, cost of living increase. They just kind of took right. it, you know, it was like, okay, well, whatever. But, but yeah. you know, why do you think people keep tying the minimum wage into cost of living, which in my opinion, doesn't really factor into it as much as people like to make it seem? Yeah, it's, it's that argument, right? It's not coming from them. They're not the ones coming up with it. It is a corporate ideal that if we can convince a large enough section of the population that raising the minimum wage is going to be bad for them, then we can have a big voting block against it. Um, and what it is, it's people who kind of work for like 15 to $20 an hour. Um, they wouldn't see any benefit for other people getting that additional wage. Like they don't think they would get a pay adjustment to match uh, any sort of cost of living adjustment that would happen. Like prices would rise. Like I swear there've been studies about this for like McDonald's and what the typical cost of a meal would happen if the minimum wage were to go from 725 to 50 bucks an hour and it'd go up like uh, 10, 11%. It's not double like what people seem to think it would be. It's pretty marginal when you think about it. I mean, it's mm. a pretty small impact. What you got Irish? Well, just on that exact point, I mean, I mean, obviously, you you you've heard of the Big Mac index index. Um, so, I mean, like, I think is it a? I know for a fact, Washington D.C. and Oregon pay like you know fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage. I think, mm-hmm. um, but the cost of a Big Mac is not double what you would pay in a state that pays seven twenty five. That's exactly it's right. Pretty much as simple as that. Um, you, you know, uh, um, I, I would just like to know your opinion on, uh, you know, the value that employers get from from their employees, like in terms of their productivity and stuff like that. You, you know, th- there seems to be corporate is in particular in the bigger uh, institutions that the corporate policies. You know, we we pay this wage in this state. You know that that's it. Uh, there's no negotiation. And I think there's a power imbalance there, uh, you know, because a, a lot of employees are worth more, as you pointed out before, like ones that have worked there for years uh, that, that may not be entry level first job kind of employees. Um, but I, I think now it's it's beginning to change because of this great you know, resignation kind of thing. Uh, and and ha- do you think that the, that the power that, uh, you know, employers had for a long, long time is beginning to change in terms of what the employee um, can expect in their their worth. Yeah, this is a uh, this is interesting, right? It's 
it's how far away really is the employer from the employee, right? With large corporations, your Walmarts, your Amazons, you know, Jeff Bezos isn't shaking hands with a warehouse worker, right? The Waltons are never rubbing elbows with people doing the checkout. And so there's this disconnect because they don't actually see these employees, right? These are just essentially numbers, names on pay stubs. Um, and so there's a bit of a, a missing human connection to it. Um, they don't kind of care. They do PR stunts, right? They hire veterans or they hire disabled workers to make their company seem like they're trying to do the good thing. Um, and so you, there are just all these kind of stunts to really skirt the issue, which is how are we treating people who are working for us? And when employees feel like they're respected and they feel like they have their voices heard, they go out and perform better because they feel like the company wants them just as much as they want to hold that job. Um, but if you treat people like crap, they will give you crappy attitude and crappy work. So it's, yeah, there's a real big disconnect there. Like it's all about how you treat people. It's, it's not necessarily how you pay people even. Mm, Pay helps for sure. Yeah. Continue, Irish. Okay, uh, I'll ask you a rhetorical question. Um, what do you think is more broken, the labor market or the people that work at it? That's a good. The market one. itself <laughs> works. Yeah, that's it's pretty good. Uh, the market works, right? Jobs are available. People can choose to enter those jobs. Um, it is people rediscovering their self-worth, right? Mm. When they were taken care of a bit by the government, they can understand that like, maybe it isn't worth going to work for nine bucks an hour anymore. Right? Maybe I am worth more than what my employer thinks I am. And so this is kind of an interesting shift in history, I think. It's a, it could be a big win for the labor movement. Uh, we'll, we'll see how it pans out because, you know, it's, the strains are running at each other. We'll, we'll see who wins. Yeah, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, and I could be I, I could be wrong here. Uh, in 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 your military, there, there and there, there's a thing called hazard pay or something along those lines, where depending on where you are, you get paid differently. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, well I, mean, I would extend that to to uh, like the likes of, in particular, during a pandemic in, in retail. You know, there, there, there were some companies that did pay, uh, I suppose, what you would call the equivalent to hazard pay. But that was there before. You know, you know, uh, you know yes, perhaps COVID was not there before. But, uh, you know, being exposed to the general public who are liable to do almost anything to a minimum wage employee deserves something more than minimum wage, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, retail employees, fast food employees do, most employees do not get paid to deal with some of the people who walk into their restaurants and their stores. Um, I just, I remember working fast food and had this lady blow up at me for like, cleaning her table or something like it was like something nonsensical and she got mad at me for like doing my job and I'm getting paid I think seven fifty an hour like <laughs> garbage yep. like you're not paid for that that's exactly like I never got training on how to deal with angry customers well, I just 
that train on how to clean tables and take orders. Like, yeah, I, I mean, what, what, sorry, Steve, just just on that, I I, I once got um, a customer complain to me that they're. Uh, that there was a fly in the room, and that that you know it needed to be <laughs> removed. I, I you, you know, there was oh, oh no, uh, it was a job I did not have hold for very long. It was a, I was a bartender for a while, uh, and the customer complains that like oh oh there's a fly annoying me. What do you want me to do? <laughs> like, You're hired to be a bartender, not not pest control. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, I have an interesting yeah. one for you, Nick. Uh, yeah. One of our Warzone core members had a prediction a while back, and he, he wanted me to ask you about it. He said he was wondering okay. what you would think of his prediction that if wages go up, customer service employers could move to a quote-unquote gig economy model where everyone is a quote-unquote independent contractor. Ooh. That's a good That's one. Yeah. Yeah. The gig economy is pretty strange because they're they're trying to skirt employment laws essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so states are kind of cracking down on it, right? They're starting to crack down on things like Uber and Lyft and forcing them to treat employees like employees. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's really all about benefits. Can you work full time, receive benefits from this job? Because if you can't, you're never going to want to work that position, ideally, right? Unless you absolutely have to. And then you end up working two jobs or three jobs. And it's, I don't know that it would, customer service would just go to a gig economy. I don't know who would voluntarily sign up to be like a busboy or to take orders if they couldn't get regular hours doing it. I agree with you there. I think more of the concept, you know, would be businesses getting desperate, you know, to to not provide benefits and, you know, at least try it just to see if they can get away with it. Because unfortunately, you got a lot of desperate people out there that will take any kind of work they can find. Yeah. And, you know, if Walmart was to do that, it's over for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, it's, there are a lot of desperate people out there, but there also are kind of like minimum needs to be the need to be met. And so that's again, part of the reason that people just haven't gotten fully back into the workforce yet. It's just, it's like, is this going to pay me enough to make me leave my house? Like, and so they could risk it, but they, they'd also risk like not having work, like not having the workers come. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth that gamble, but yeah. somebody will, uh, I there's a lot of foolish retailers out there. It would not surprise me to see somebody attempt that. It might, it'll probably fail, you know, you know, immensely, but I can see somebody yeah. trying, especially like the dollar stores. Cause I was a manager for a dollar tree for a very long time. And, you know, you make a really good point about, you know, long-term employees that, you know, they've been there longer or whatnot. And, you know, I talk about an employee that I had that, you know, he was 50 something years old or whatnot. He was never going to carry a set of keys. He was never going to get promoted, but he was one of the best damn employees I had. He always showed up. If I needed somebody, he was there. You know, he was clutch all the time. And I just feel like, you know, there's value to that. And they deserve to get paid better than seven thirty-five an hour. Yeah, absolutely. It's again, it's all about how you treat people, right? There are people who work for pretty low pay. I mean, you, 
teachers among them, right? But if there's respect in the school district, they stay with the school district, even if it doesn't pay as well as some of these better ones or bigger, you know, better pay. You're right, schools. because that, that's something I, I, I've dabbled in wanting to do an episode on as teachers, because, all right, the, the, you know, the pay is obviously, it could be a lot better. But, you know, when you're looking locally or you're looking at like, you know, any kind of teacher, the amount of money that the teacher has to put out themselves for supplies and and all those things and, you know, and all the parents. We're talking hundreds, possibly thousands a year, yeah. right? And you know what the tax write-off is for it? What? 250 bucks. Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's it. Like, uh, think about an elementary school teacher, all the money they spend on like clean up. Kleenex boxes. You remember when you were a kid, you had a, like a list of things you had to yes. bring the first day, right? They go through those by like February. So the last three months is all out of the teacher salary. All the bulletin boards you would see that had decorations and, you know, their little cubbies and whatever all comes out of the teacher salary. Like all the classroom setup comes from teacher salaries. And like, I don't think people realize how much extra money that, that especially in K-12, the teachers put in. Um, to do their jobs and to do it effectively. I've always been a proponent of, I've, I, I feel like that teachers should be paid like pro athletes because, you know, teachers are such a fundamental foundation for all children, you know, and you're not only are you tasked, you know, like you said, you know, going through K-12 or whatnot, especially, you know, in the early grades, not only are you tasked with educating children, you're also tasked with caring for them you know and god you guys need a lot more money i'm just i'm just gonna say that (laughs) yeah i elementary school teachers man especially if they teach like kindergarten like the first year that those students are in it's like herding cats right because the student (laughs) just isn't aware on all the functions that a school goes through all the standing in line and all the timing that has to happen for it uh and holy cow, I mean, just, and the attitudes you could get from these kids, you'll never get the same kid two days in a row. So like, it, and they do, they spend seven hours a day with them, mm-hmm. like it, almost like their own kids, you know, <laughs> like there's a huge connection. There. I will, I'll go on record saying that it, it, it is blatantly obvious that educators got completely screwed during the pandemic. I mean, listen, I'm very fortunate to have kept my job during the pandemic. Um, I ended up working remotely, doing a lot of these uh, Zoom meetings and Skype meetings to try to do it. And, you know, that that connection with students just wasn't there. Like I wouldn't see them outside of class ever. Um, And a lot of them, they would just put up black screens and just they would chime in. A couple of them would chime in, but most of it was just a lot of dead, dead air, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, it was, it was really tough for educators. And then you have all this pushback now on like mask mandates uh, and just, they are not paid to deal with this crap. No, no. And, and that's something too, that we've brought up, you know, even in the retail sector, as far as mandates go, you know, like you said, when, when you got yelled at, you know, for cleaning a table, you know, you've got these people out there working, you know, for really low wages doing a job, and, and you're expecting them to police a mandate. Fine. If you, if you got a mandate to police, go hire you some damn security you, or, or start paying the people to police it, you know? Right. It's also, 
it's a little more flexible in the private arena. Private retail stores can make their own policies, right? You can see store policies even outside of places like Walmart, where they say, according to CDC guidelines, masks are recommended in the store, and they can place them out there. But if it's not being enforced, then it's, it's really not much of a mandate. Um, in the public sector, everything kind of has to go through this bureaucratic system because these are state employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's there was a lot of pushback on it here in Wyoming because Wyoming's a very conservative, um, kind of libertarian. You do things on your own. And so they kind of like, don't tell me what to do is the big attitude. Um, and so a lot of parents like really disagreed with having any sort of mass mandate for students, even though they saw flu rates drop and they saw student attendance rates go up when students were wearing masks, they were still just like livid that the teachers would recommend what the CDC recommends. Yep. It's just, it's mind boggling. Yeah. All right. So we're just about at an hour Irish. You get the last go around. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> I just like to ask uh, Nick, thank you so much first of all, for coming on today. I, I, I reached out to a lot of academics and, uh, and, and you know, y- you were one of the few that actually came back. Uh, so props to you for that. Uh, but I would like to ask, from an academic point of view, to wrap this up, uh, do you plan in the future to do any sort of, uh, what, what research are you going to do on the minimum wage or... Um, uh, you know, subjects of interest you have. That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, so I don't do a lot of research on the minimum wage. Um, one thing I'm working on right now is a, uh, it's more just for the, the state economy as a whole, is looking at um, tax rates and tax growth. So Wyoming is a fortunate state because it's blessed with a lot of natural resources. So we have no uh, state income tax, no state corporate income tax. Um, And so I was looking at uh, having, or, you know, how do tax rates affect GDP growth over time? Um, And why hasn't Wyoming with these incredibly low taxes grown over time? And then comparing it to uh, the type of economy the state has and just looking at ways that Wyoming needs to adapt. So I'm working on a kind of a more macro level. I don't do a lot of research with the minimum wage. Um, I just been asked to do interviews. So I do research on it. What are some laws surrounding it? And then just doing some kind of back of the envelope calculations on really, can you live off the minimum wage anymore? And the answer is clear that one job isn't going to do it. Like, nope. Thank, thank you. All righty, Nick, I really do appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, this, this was a very informative conversation. Um, you know, we touch on these topics a lot, but, you know, Irish was correct in having somebody, you know, who is truly, you know, an economist, you know, to kind of speak on these things. It, it gives a lot of validity, you know, to, you know, the argument, so to speak. So uh, once again, I absolutely appreciate your time. Uh, you know, thank you for, you know, following through or whatnot. And um, do you have any last words? Minimum wage has to go up at some point. And I'm, I hope it goes up soon. Same. All right, my friend, it has been a great evening, everybody. You know, thanks for watching. I know, you know, it was a Friday night. We don't do this often, but yeah. this is something that we believe in and, and we felt like we needed to do um, next Wednesday. 
uh, we'll be talking with um, Mr. Petrovelli about his retail comic book. So that's coming up. Uh, I'm going to take a nice little breather this weekend after the fiasco of the last few days. So <laughs> everybody have a great evening and we'll see you next time. Take care guys. Thanks for having me on.